brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're in trying times, Mark. There's a coronavirus ravaging its way across the earth. And I just want to make sure, even though sometimes we make light of certain situations, this is how humans, you know, uh, cope with such things as we make light of the subject and, and we make, you know, jokes and stuff to, you know, try to get through such things. So I just want to make sure people don't take things that I say or that Mark says that we're, you know, making light of the situation, which we're not. We're just trying to cope with it like everyone else. So this all being said, how do you feel today, Mark? I feel great. Good. I've been taking my temperature daily. I've been washing my hands like crazy. I don't touch my face nearly so much as I'm inclined to. And with that and some social isolation, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do my part in this time of collective action. It's it's really weird. Normally, when you think about collective action, it's about joint movement and solidarity and some sort of coming together. This is collective action in terms of dissolution and keeping apart, which is somewhat unusual, but I'm trying to do the best I can. Yeah, I just I wanted to bring it up because we're getting all... Yet even more, you know, Kickstarter updates about how the coronavirus is setting things back even further. And one that I thought, you know, sort of hit me the wrong way. They were they were upset about the fact that they weren't going to get the games in time for Gen Con in order to get those right. retail sales. And I was right. like, I yeah, Gen Con you got bad news for you, buddy. Not yeah, exactly. Quite sure if that's going to happen. Honestly, anyway. the the Kickstarter updates I can deal with. What I can't deal with this isn't strictly gaming news. Every bank. Every service, every garage, every fast food restaurant that has my email is sending me messages about how they care deeply and all the things that they're doing to protect every, everyone, to protect people from COVID-19. Open parents, please come frequent our business anyway, close parents. I'm getting a little tired of that part. This all being said, we're going to talk about board games now. Let's. First, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year. Do we have to? I'm afraid we do. Okay. Uh, games we played this week. News and why it doesn't matter, and our topic of the week, which is our 
Omnibus! Omnibus questionnaire extraordinaire. All right. So last year, Mark, we <laughs> reviewed a game called Discover Lands Unknown. And that being said, it was fantasy flights genre into into things unknown. You know, making board <laughs> games that were all completely different from one another. We speculated at the time that maybe this was the test run to see if their manufacturing and distribution capacity could handle randomization so as to prepare them for Keyforge. I don't know if that's true, but if so, at least they were very successful in doing that. And I, I meant to actually comment in our context of discussing adventure games. Actually, I did comment. I did mention Discover Lens Unknown in the context of adventure games. They tend to be bad. And Discover Lens Unknown is definitely... I think it's the worst one I've ever played, and it's possibly the worst game we've given our feature game treatment to since Alien Artifacts. I think it'll be a toss-up between those two, which I think is is less good. This all being said, the, the difference between how well Keyforge did compared to Discoverlands Unknown is quite drastic as well. Well, Keyforge, they're radically different distribution they, models. They so. are. I'm just saying the fact that they're sort of under the same vein of completely everyone is being completely different. They both came out at the same time, and they both by the same... Yeah, but randomization is part and parcel of the sort of two-player card battling system ever since Magic, as opposed to adventure games, which are already tend to be rather thin on narrative, and discover lands unknown, randomizing them yet further. This is just another... Look, look, Corey Kanaska is not a designer I tend to appreciate. A lot of his work tends to not fire for me. Usually it's not as bad as Discover Lands Unknown. Sure. Anyway, suffice to say, we have not returned to it since that, we reviewed it. That and, and it had left itself open for, for expansion, and I have not heard anything, nor has it been hinted at. The market reaction was pretty universal, and there was a pretty strong consensus. And it dropped pretty hard off of the hotness. It's true. So that is Discover Lands Unknown by Fantasy Flight Games. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark was nice enough to introduce me to a game called Blitzkrieg, designed by Palo Mori. Now, this is a fantastic two-player game. Like Mark said, it's much like Dogs of War. You're, you're playing these chits to move up and down these different tracks, and not only are the tracks important, but where you're putting these chits is very important. You're either increasing your hand size or, or putting more chits into your bag, and there's the decision space is huge. Like every, you know, there's so many like where to put it, when to put it, which ones to hold on to, you know, are you going to have to be worried about, you know, having to discard some randomly tons of things to think about. Love Blitzkrieg. Any more thoughts on it, Mark? So this is a review copy that we got from PSC games. And the thing that I really appreciate more and more I play as I play Blitzkrieg, I've now played it about half a dozen times. The timing issues are so delicious and so agonizing because you're simultaneously operating on any number of different fronts. And every front, this is the default World War II map, the Japan expansion map we haven't tried yet. But in the default map, every front has any number of different levels. And once you finish a level, points are awarded based on who's winning the front. But then the next level of action spaces opens up. And sometimes you desperately don't want to let your opponent get access to that next level of action spaces because they'll be the next to go. On the other hand, sometimes you desperately want to finish off that line because you're currently winning and other things might change that exogenously. And oh, this is this kind of tension might be happening across three or four different fronts all at once. To say nothing of the fact that there are all these enticing action spaces on these other fronts that people haven't gone to yet. It's really marvelous and I really do appreciate the fact that Paolo Mori took what we already adored in Dogs of War 
more and really, I think, very cleverly adapted it into a two-player system. And it, again, it's gets all this done in 20 minutes. A very, very satisfying, tense two-player worker placement experience in 20 minutes with a very, very minimal rule set. I'm not going to say it feels at all like World War II. That would be an exaggeration and a gross one at that. But it's a really solid game and a very compelling package. Yeah, it's 20 minutes with setup and teardown, I think, really, because it's instant setup. And like you said, the, it's a very light rule set. You know, you could teach it and start playing almost immediately. And it's one of those games where the the... The actions are simple, but the the implications are huge. And that is Blitzkrieg. Remember, this is Blitzkrieg with an exclamation point. Yes. I played another game of Horizon Wars Zero Dark. I started talking about this last week. This is the solo slash co-op slash PvP if you want it to be 28 mil skirmish system by Roby Jenkins, he of Horizon Wars. And last week I talked about getting my team together, and this week I sent them out in the first mission in the published version. The published version is now finally available to people who are not Patreon backers at Precinct Omega, so you can swing by uh, Wargame Vault. It's on a special introductory price of uh, price of 10 quid, and I have to say, even at that price, it's it's quite a bargain. I already had access to it by virtue of being a backer, but I bought it again because Roby Jenkins is doing interesting stuff and he should be supported. And it was a lot of fun. The fundamental action system and activation system and resolution of Horizon War Zero Dark is a joy. And it involves lots of little trade-offs and tense decisions about who to activate because, unlike most other skirmish games, you don't activate people sequentially. You can activate the same character over and over and over again if you want to, if they're the one that needs to get things done. Similarly, based Based on the way action resolution happens, if you are good enough and if you're clever enough with your activations, those activations will trigger bonus actions, which you can then use to activate your secondary people to do other things. And it's got a lot of flavor and nuance. The scenario that I played was relatively standard, and I do have to say, I never felt like I was at all in danger, which is a common problem in a lot of solo or co-op games. The difficulty rating can be tough to get just right. That having been said, I don't know if this is just because I had a combination of people that were particularly well suited to this mission, or if the AI polls that I had were particularly advantageous. There was a little bit of that. A few more complications, this being a technical term in the game, a complication can mean any number of wild things happen, definitely would have made things more difficult, but I don't know if they would have made them satisfyingly tense. Mostly I was having a joy with the system, not so much with the challenge that it was presenting me with. And I have to say that I'm looking forward to future endeavors. And just just to broaden the context a little bit, I've heard Roby Jenkins talk very eloquently about the intersection of sociability, isolation, mental illness, and gaming broadly. And now, and more on this later, as we have time to reflect on self-isolation measures here in North America and certainly in the rest of the world in the face of COVID-19, it is very opportune to consider how we can you know, try to preserve our hobby time, even in the face of not being able to get together in game groups. And so solo miniatures gaming is definitely one of the ways that I plan to be doing that in the coming weeks. So I will be putting my my little crew through their paces again. And just as a final capper, one of the great things about Zero Dark is given the way that it's miniature agnostic and given the way that there's tons of room for customization, you can use whatever miniature you want to represent whomever you want. And so I finally got to use infinity miniatures that I've never really had a chance to field because I have very dogmatic views on what is and is not a good miniature in infinity. But there are some really attractive units that I never, ever feel like I have these beautifully painted Nisses and Neoterra bolts from the Panosianian faction, and let me tell you something about medium infantry in Infinity. Most of the time, medium infantry in Infinity is a mistake, with a capital M. There are some exceptions, of course. If you have airborne deployment, then that's a different matter entirely, but most of the time, 
those are wasted points. Anyhow, so I've been able to field just what I wanted to. Everything is beautiful. And all these units that have never seen table time finally get a chance to shine. And I am very much enjoying Zero Dark and hoping that the difficulty ramps up. This is why I sent you a picture of those clawed men. Because I'm going to like kit out a whole a whole unit of mud men with, with machine guns. It's going to be great. But on the vein of, of difficulty rating, and we all know that we love to lose co-op games... Got to play Fox in the Forest Duet. And when you win a co-op game the very first time you play it out of the box, it's a little bit disheartening. But that being said, maybe we just got lucky. Looking forward to playing it some more. It is a trick-taking game. So this company not only has they not, have they now made a two-player trick-taking game, they've now made a two-player cooperative trick-taking game. So the same sort of, sort of thing, all the odd-numbered cards, there's no face cards, and all the odd-numbered cards have special abilities that let you trade cards and and switch the trump and and decide, you know, there's a pawn that you're moving back and forth on this map to pick up gems, so it lets you move it in different directions depending on who wins. So looking forward to trying it more. I'm hoping to lose. That would be great. So let me just ask you something. It's a two-player tricking game. The tricks are just two cards, yes? Correct. Uh, what's the overall scoring method? Well, there's little paw prints beside the numbers. So when you play the two cards, you add up the paw prints, and whoever won the trick, it's going to move towards them that many spaces. I see. Okay. And, and so you're trying to, and there's all these gems on the different spaces, so you're trying to just sort of space your way out and pick up all the gems before either A, because you can you know blow out and go off each side of the map, in which case it you know, shuts down certain spaces, and if you if you blow off the map and you've used all your, you know, tokens that block that, then the game is over and you So lose. my partner leads a card with some number of paw prints, and that what that tells me is that I want to lose the trick with this many paw prints or win the trick with this many paw prints. Correct. I see. Okay, thank you. And that was Fox in the Forest Duet. By Renegade Games. I played Mezzo. Mezzo is the first big box game by John Cloudus. John Cloudus, he of small box games that has been making a whole bunch of mostly two player card games for years. The most famous of which being Omen Reign of War, which uh, recently got kickstarted in a new edition with some new expansions by Colossal Games, who have also published Mezzo. Uh, they're also specializing in publishing lies about delivery times. That's it's it's a bit of a niche. And I was, I was curious about Mezzo. I was very, very curious because number one, it's in a niche that we tend to appreciate and haven't played a, a bunch lately, which is to say strange troops on a map games. Buckets of plastic on a board. Lots of plastic on a board. And a couple of my very, very trusted geek buddies hate Mezzo. They despise it. One of them hates it purely on the basis of information presentation and has not played it. One of them hated it so much that they couldn't get through an entire game. They gave up halfway through, declaring it to be unoriginal, derivative, joyless, and stupid. Wow. I quite liked Mezzo. I thought it was nice. <laughs> so Mezzo is a game about Mesoamerica, hence uh, the Mezzo. So it's about Aztec and Mayan mythology. You basically play as, as a god with an associated tribe. And the theming is not very good. The theming is mostly visual. The only element that is remotely thematic and probably not even very represented at that is that as a god, you can sacrifice a lot of your followers. And there'll be a lot of doing that. There's this notion of appeasing a wrathful god, which is not very clearly expressed, but the notion is that you're appeasing yourself, which is to say you get really, really angry, you eat a couple of your followers, you then do something awesome, and then you're happy. Like my Wednesday schedule. Gotcha. Precisely, precisely. It is a little bit unfortunate in its length. 
I've played it with four players and I played it with three players. With four players, it was about three-ish hours with rules explanation. With three players, it was two-ish hours with rules explanation. And that's longer than I wanted. In that sense, it's very similar, much like in very a lot of other senses, it's very similar to Rising Sun. Not in terms of setting, and not necessarily even in terms of a whole lot of mechanisms, because Mezzo is not a negotiation game. At least in that sense, it's very similar to Rising Sun, Zing. But it's very much in the sense of, okay, I need, I need to manage these relatively strange mechanical limitations and get my ducks in a row, and I might find out two turns from now that I did something in terms of my weird figure supply that means that I'm now kind of in a bit of a tight spot. Whereas Rising Sun, I thought, took that to a whole new level, where it's like, oh, that thing that happened outside of my control, I guess I'm boned now. Mezzo is more like, oh, I need to figure out if I have enough figures available. Because like, unlike a lot of other troops on a map game, getting all your figures out on the board is not the challenging part. The challenging part is making sure they are at the place where you need them, and where you need them might even be sitting in front of you in your supply, so you should hold back and not deploy when you could, or might even be in the land of the dead, because they're going to do something awesome from there. Anyhow, a lot of interesting stuff happens over a course of Mezzo, independently of its theming. It's a lot about, again, making sure your figures are where you need them, and a lot of interesting effects. The asymmetry is rather considerable. I don't know. If I knew more about the mythology involved, maybe I'd think it was super thematic. But honestly, it, it didn't really strike me as all that. Very, very strong table presence, though. The large god figures, again, most of the theming is skin deep, are very, very visually impressive. Very well sculpted. It's actually produced by the same group of people that made the components for Kemet. And so the large god figures look very much like the monster figures from Kemet, only huge. Similarly, the tribe figures for the various player powers in Mezzo strange artifact similarity to Kemet, the sculpts do not correspond universally to player colors. So my guys that are red might be yellow in your copy and might be green in someone else's copy, which is strange. And that was true of Kemet as well. So I, I don't know if that's a feature or a bug. It's definitely strange and unusual. So Mezzo's a little bit too long and it is not necessarily super thematic, but I, I still really enjoyed it. I think it's barely worth its playing time. I would like it to come down. It's one of those games that's too long by virtue of the fact that everyone is doing a whole bunch of really small actions. And if everyone was ready to go right away, it could proceed a lot uh, faster than it would otherwise. But everyone takes a little bit too... And I mean everyone, not just slow players. But everyone takes a little bit too long about thinking about how to execute their next action. And that just adds up and adds up and adds up. So, despite the fact that you look down at your watch and realize you've been playing for two and a half hours and you're not quite done, you're always engaged because there's a whole lot of very small incremental things. And there's the opportunity for some seriously confrontational player interaction in the way that a lot of good troops on a map game do. Prepare for some hurt feelings, prepare for some surprise victories, but it's not really in the sense of take that nonsense. It's more in the sense of, aha, I put my ducks in a row and now you're doomed. So, I recommend Mezzo. It was really interesting. Walker very much wants to play it and hasn't yet, so I'll definitely play it again with him. And there's a lot of variety available in the core box, despite a number of strange decisions that they've made in terms of, you know, things like theming and things like uh, terminology in particular. But overall, it's pretty compelling, and I'm probably going to have more to say later, and that was Mezzo. Mark and I got to play a game of Mega Civ the other day, and it, I have to say that it really, you know, brings out everything that a large game like that should have, right? Keeps you engaged the whole time. And it's a, this constant balance that you have to keep between uh, expanding your forces out and building these cities. Cause you can't have too many cities without the right number of troops. 
And it creates this very interesting dynamic where you can build sort of like a wall of cities so you can't be attacked because your opponents need a, a very large number of troops in order to to break through. That being said, you can't move out of there either. So them breaking through is sort of like, you know, opening up a hornet's nest. It's like suddenly where you can't really interact with each other. Now they've made this path where you can, you know, you know, bust out all of your troops. So, so the incentive for them to do that is not there either. Never mind the fact that it takes a bunch of troops to do so. So, like I said, lots of, it all moves very quickly. There's even like this trading negotiation phase, which, you know, you're throwing these commodities around to keep, you know, liven up each turn. And then other than that, I just think it, for a game that you could technically have 18 players in, I really think it has everything it should. I think if it's any more complicated than it is, I think it would be too much. There's a lot we could say about Bagel Civilization. First of all, let me stress, we played it on my birthday in a facility with a sink. Everyone washed their hands the first time they came in. If this were next week or the week after, I would have, I would have canceled it. There are no confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Kingston. If there were any cases, confirmed cases, which is not to say that there are no cases. I know there are cases, probably. It's probably being spread as we speak. I just want to make very clear that we're not being irresponsible. I don't want to model irresponsible behavior here on this podcast. Everyone was very careful. We followed proper precautions. We had protocols. We disinfected things. We even omitted the controversial step seven of every turn, which is the lick your opponent's face step. So we got rid of that. We were, strictly speaking, playing a variant. It's my favorite step, Mark. I know, look, sacrifices have to be made. Anyway. I wore lipstick. I have a lot of feelings about Civilization, the entire series, and Mega Civ is fabulous. We ended up playing with 11 people, which is as big as you can get while staying on one half of the map. Once you go to 12, you're playing on both halves of the map, both east and west. First off, some people have asked, can we compare Mega Civilization to Western Empires? And quite frankly, there's no need to, because... Western civilization is literally half of mega civilization. The rules are the same. There are very minor component differences, but that is it. Eastern empires, on the other hand, which is going to be the sort of sequel to Western empires, they've lost the the rights to call it Civ. The, The people who made mega civilization can't call it civilization anymore. So that's why it's going to be Western empires and Eastern empires, which will combine to form mega empires going forward. But Eastern Empires, they say they're going to change some of the rules for small player games. And by small player games, they mean like when you only have five, six, or seven. Oh. Yes. Uh, for, for, for a tiny, uh, intimate gathering. That, I don't know what they're going to be doing. More on that later. But So Western Empires, which is available now, and Mega Civilization are the same game. It's just Western Empires tops out at nine. The great thing about Mega Civilization, just to dovetail off of what Walker was saying, when a game is going to be longer than three hours, you really want the game to have some sense of scope. And what's wonderful about Mega Civ, and Civilization as well, this is true of the, the original version, less true of Advanced Civilization, to be honest. In Civ and Mega Civ, you have to worry about population expansion. Then you suddenly have to start worrying about geographical restrictions. Then you have to start worrying about urbanization. And then you have to start worrying about decadence. And then you have to start worrying about getting the next scientific advancement. And then you have to start worrying about population pressures again. And this is all coming at you in waves of development such that it feels narratively rich because you're constantly dealing with an evolving set of constraints. Despite the fact that, as Walker said, the rule set is shockingly simple. For a game of its intricacy and for a game of its length and for a game of its level of strategic depth, the rule set is very, very easy. 
And that's one of the joys of letting people watch and explore mega civilization. This happens every time when I sit down with a new group of people for any form of civilization. They come braced for an endless rules explanation because they, that's what they're accustomed to. And then they wait, that's it? The most complicated thing, and this has become a running joke, both in person and even now on our boards, thanks very much for people who've infected yet more of the internet with this, is how boats work. And how boats work is actually relatively simple. So everything is very simple. I adore Mega Civilization. I will play it at the drop of a hat. If I had five, six, or seven players, I would probably just play Civilization with the Western Expansion map. But there is something to being able to get a whole bunch of people together in a large enough space to accommodate it and to spend the afternoon playing this. Now, we played largely by virtue of the fact that when getting gamers together, it's a bit like herding cats, so we started very late, which is to be expected. We only actually ended up playing for about four-ish hours, which is a very abbreviated game of Mega Civ. That having been said, it was still eminently satisfying. The chief challenge when playing a game that's that, that truncated of Civ, the effects of calamities take on an outsized importance. You, Walker, had a, had a couple of comments about those as we were wrapping up. Yeah, I, I, was, I just thought they seemed... Oh, I always say this, but they just seem excessive and, and, and very hurtful to some players. That's all. They're extremely painful. They'll wipe out three or four cities at a time. But the trick is, if you are managing population pressures, which is large, which is basically half of the entire challenge of the game, you can recover from losing half of your cities in one or two turns. If you have, if you're given enough space to, and over the course of a full game, which will probably take you in excess of eight hours rather than four hours, you're going to have more time to recover. And so it smooth things out that way. So that's the key casualty of playing a four or five hour game of Mega Civ. You're going to lose some of that. All told, all things being equal, if you give me four hours to play a Civ game, I'd probably play five players, basic Civ, the short version and with the Western expansion up. But anyway. I have a lot of things to say about Civilization, and I'll have more opportunity to say so later, but it had been far too long since we played Mega Civilization last. This was a big blowout birthday event, the last big social event of the calendar season before we all retreat into our own burrows and self-isolate, and I'm very, very glad we were able to get together, and I always have a pleasure playing any forms of the Civilization, so long as it's not advanced Civilization. Sure, I'm not... I'm, I'm... I'm not quite sure it would hold up to eight hours. Like I could, sim I could easily see two four-hour sessions, but but with how simple the rules are, just to, to to do that over and over again for eight hours, I'm not sure if it would hold up for me. Speak for yourself, quitter. Well, there you go, Mark. We played a game called Battle for Baternia. We did. It is by Chris Falkenberry from Stone Circle Games. This was also a review copy given to us by the designer. We love MOBA games. More on this later for me anyway. And I thought out of all the games that try to show the MOBA field, this has done the best at showing the pace of a MOBA game. Really? What do you mean by the pace? Just mean it, it was much faster. It was like bam, bam, bam. You know, you just play some cards and it keeps moving. There was no... In MOBA games, there's a lot of minions, even though there are no minions in this. But so far, even in... Uh, in the LOL version, you know, you're constantly sliding minions up. And then in... Uh, well, there's Guards of Atlantis, Guard there's Roman yes. Bones. Just Those like are you, the two... Rom, both of them, Roman Bones and Guards of Atlantis. Tons of minions. And so you're 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 endlessly, you know, sliding these miniatures up. And it takes time. Well, in Guards of Atlantis, they're largely stationary. They are. But you're... So, you're spending a lot of time interacting with them. Yes. yes, interacting with them. And then when the field moves, you have to slide them all up and bring them all up back on the board again. This was back and forth. I just seemed to, I think, I thought the pacing 
brought out that part of the game better than anything else I've played so huh. far. It's it's weird for you to say that because I think I, I agree that there are lots of good things to say about Battle for Vaternia. It's strange though that given that it's around a forty five to sixty minute game, it's roughly as long as an actual session of something like League of Legends or one of the shorter sessions of something like Dota. I don't have a lot of Dota experience. Whereas games like Rum and Bones or Guards of Atlantis, which I think do a better job of emulating different aspects of the MOBA genre, they're going to last you about 90 minutes, usually speaking, which is only about twice as long as, as a, a game of League of Legends. So it's strange for you to say that it captures the pacing when, in a very real way, it kind of focuses on one aspect of MOBA gaming, which is, say, the hero versus hero action, and completely leaves out anything to do with minions. It does. That's why I did say that. I'm just meant like, just the the feel of it is sure. what I'm saying. Like you know, the back and forth where there's like there's no upkeep or set. You know, what I mean, there doesn't seem to be much. Oh, it is busy de- work. It is it is definitely more streamlined in that sense. There's a you do cycle through rounds very 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 quickly. It's just a question of moving your heroes and then playing out a card. Yes, it's very very straightforward, streamlined, and much faster and visceral in that sense. And I, I really like the way they uh, how you reincarnate your heroes. Like if your hero dies, you, you take their character card and it goes into your discard pile. Much like Aeon's End, where you don't shuffle your discard pile when you're done. So your your character cards go in there when they die and. You flip your deck over, and so when they come back up in your hand, you get to deploy them back on the map. I thought that was very interesting. I thought it was a much better use of the don't shuffle your deck than it was done in Aeon's End. In Aeon's End, the way that it works is you set up these card combos, and then you just pump these combos over and over because they're all clustered. Here, what it does is it represents a cooldown for a hero's special ability and or the death timer when a hero gets knocked out. So that part I thought was really cool. And that's Battle for Baturnia, and it has a very cute 8-bit art. And a nice anime cover. Other than that, it's worth trying it once. I don't know. I'm not sure if there'll be much there with multiple plays, but... You at least get to try different heroes and different hero combinations. Because the hero roster is pretty extensive. I've actually... This is the third time I've played Battle for Baturnia. I actually find it growing growing on me with subsequent plays. Even though, as I keep saying, it leaves out the minions. And I do love how different game systems integrate the minion aspect into the representation of MOBAs. As a one-on-one tactical fighty type of thing, I think Battle Baturnia is much more successful. As emulating the bits that I like about MOBA games, I think it's less successful at that. So it's strange that we seem to have sort of mirror images of each other. Well, they sort of introduce the towers. Not many of the mobile games have towers, right? And this one does. But anyway, moving on, you you have to tell me how this pronounces it. Is it Pirate Billiards? It's spelled Piraten Billiard. I don't know how it's actually pronounced in German. No, but I'm thinking it represents Pirate Billiards. I don't think it represents much of anything, but yes. <laughs> so we played Pirate Billiards. We did. It is a game from 1959. I know. By Reinhold Wittig. It's a wooden grid about an inch high, and underneath is a, a linen sheet glued taut. And then you're going to put some marbles in this grid, and then you're going to use these mallets underneath the table, and you're going to knock your knock your marbles around. How's that's that? A, that's a pretty good explanation. I, I, too, have difficulty explaining what the game is like. Well, it's it's sort of like I said, like, you showed the box. The box is huge, and, and the box is this window, so you can see inside it. But it's one of those things where you're not going to grab it off the shelf and say, hey, what's this? Let's try this out. You're going to know what you're looking for and what you're buying before you even go in the store. Imagine the largest pizza box you've ever seen. And then imagine someone came along and said, that pizza is for babies, and then doubled its size. (laughs) (laughs) 
That is the game of Rotten Billiard. It has a huge learning curve, figuring out how to move these marbles around this this grid without knocking them across the room. It's hard. But I think at a party setting, it would it would be a big hit, and I'm looking forward to trying it at a, like a convention setting or something like that. Like many dexterity games, it gets by on the cleverness of its core action. It's it's unlike anything else. It's not another flicking game. We love flicking games, don't get me wrong, but it's not another flicking game. And very much like dexterity games of that nature, the fundamental thing that you're doing is kind of fun. The game that surrounds it is not particularly well thought out. The There are a variety of different competing rule sets. Many of them are either too long or too arbitrary or some combination of, the bo- of both. It also has the salient fault that... The game state doesn't evolve in an interesting way. You're constantly just trying to do the same thing over and over, which is advance the ball a few fields at a time. And you do get better at it. Even in the context of a couple of plays, you do get more skilled and more adept at hitting the ball. But it doesn't evolve in satisfying ways past that. Well, I think I was just about to say, I think that is the game. Yeah. Is is getting better at shooting. And, and then you can say to yourself, I got better at shooting these yeah. marbles. And that's now, fine. So good, good for novelty. If you're like us and you want to try every dexterity game possible... It is good for a few laughs. As a robust gaming experience uh, in the dexterity field, you could probably do a lot better. And that was Parat and Billiard, and those are the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I have some, just two Kickstarter news. The first one, it is called Dark Ages. It's done by the same people who do Lords of Hellas and Nem- Nemesis. His name oh boy. is Adam Kapinski. It's spelled Kwapinski. There's an accent over the N. I don't know how to pronounce it. My sincere apologies to every human being that lives east of the Rhine. I am notoriously bad at those languages. But in English, if you wanted to pronounce it as transliterated, it is Adam Kwapinski. Anyway, the game is Dark Ages. It's on Kickstarter right now. It's yet another buckets of plastic. But it looks very much like Clash of Cultures, where you're going to have these cool little towns and... Uh, the different players will have invested interest because it looked like there was different player colors that were clipped into the different city pieces. And actually, I've seen this in videos a lot more recently. At first, I didn't, I'm not sure if I like it or not. They like animate the game pieces and they fight each other and they're unpainted. That just seems very odd to me. But anyway, I digress. Take a look at it. See if it's something you want to look into. It's one of these you know, multiple, multiple part Kickstarters, you know, you can get the, they have the East and the West version or get them both together. And anyway, it looks very interesting to me. Check it out. Dark ages. For my second piece of Kickstarter news, we're going to talk about Meeple Circus Giant. We all love a dexterity games here at So Very Wrong About Games. We love Meeple Circus. It's all about all these different circus acts and, and positions that you have to put all these little meeples in. And bigger pieces means just a better game. I wish they did. <laughs> I, I wish they did a little better job at showing exactly how big the pieces were. Hopefully there'll be more pictures up, you know, coming up. Yeah, it's twice the size. The dimensions are twice as much. And it's hard for me to visualize what that what that's like. For example, I played Rhino Hero, not Super Battle, but just normal Rhino Hero in the giant version. And honestly, the scale is hard to apprehend unless you're dealing with it in person. And the scale made it a lot better. Now, do I want to spend $100 on Rhino Hero? No. But if someone offered me the chance to pay $200 for Rhino Hero Super Battle, I'd probably spend the money like a fool. So, Meeple Circus is not that much uh, money in comparison, but it is still $100 for a dexterity game, which is a lot, especially if you've already got it. But I really want to see some pictures of the components in action. Unfortunately, they don't seem to have 
prototype versions yet of the actual materials, but I don't know what a three centimeter meeple looks like. I honestly don't. I can't visualize it. I can't put it into context. And so I'm unable to really appreciate the, 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 the scope of the changes. It's true. If we got meeple circus to the table more often, then I'd be all over this. But unfortunately, time restraints do not allow it. But I think for people who don't have it yet, I can guarantee you it is a super fun game. Check it out. It's on Kickstarter. Meeple Circus Giant. So I've been thinking a fair bit about isolation in the context of COVID-19. And I think over the course of the coming weeks, you're going to hear Walker and me talk a lot more about two-player games. And certainly me, I'm going to be talking more about solo games because the public game nights have been canceled locally for good reason. And we're just not going to be gathering together in large numbers at all. And one of the things that I've been thinking about more generally, I don't, we don't really peddle much in sentiment here in the podcast, and I, we're not going to try to change that. One, one thing we do try to peddle in is principle as much as we can. And I think it's not too soon to start asking about the ways that we can try to come out of this a little bit stronger, a little bit better. And there's a lot about this that I could say economically. Like, for example, I, I sincerely hope that we're going to come to the realization on the part of a lot of employers, both private sector and public sector, that teleworking is more viable than previously considered. But setting all that aside, I know a lot of gamers for whom gaming is their primary, if not exclusive, access to social interaction in a leisure setting. And partially this is because of preference. I know some people who are on the spectrum. I know some people with anxiety. I know a lot of people for whom the sort of structured, rule-bound setting of gaming is the ideal way for them to get together with their friends. And I think that for a lot of people, in the context of this mandatory isolation or heavily encouraged isolation, this is going to be very, very, very difficult. I've seen a lot of jokes and I'm sympathetic to them online about how I've been preparing for this moment my entire life, you know, in like shots of game collections or this is my basement with an arcade cabinet and so forth. And look, I'm, I'm sympathetic to those jokes. I felt the same way too, but I'm also conscious of the fact that it's probably going to be hard even for someone like me and for a lot of people like me for whom social interaction is not something we necessarily think about first and foremost among our needs. It's going to be very difficult. So here, here's, here's what I'm going to try to do. And I think that we should try to consider this as well. Health is not a unipolar thing. It's not a monolith. And for the sake of our physical health, we're going to need to isolate. But for the sake of our social health, try to reach out to people through other means. I'm talking about online. Maybe learn to use Vassal. I don't know. Send someone a message that you haven't talked to in a while, whether they're a gamer or someone else. I'm going to try to do this because isolation can be just as unhealthy as a virus in many cases, sometimes even worse, not to minimize the very real human toll that this virus has on people, but we should not be too trivial about the toll that isolation is going to take. And so I've been trying to reach out to people over the past uh, course of the past couple of days, especially for people whom I know gaming is their primary social, social outlet. And let's try to think going forward about ways that we can take a little bit better care of people in that context. And if we're able to do that, then maybe there will be some silver lining to this crisis. And that's all I've got to say about the topic. Like Mark said, there's Vassal, there's Tabletopia, and there's Tabletop Simulator. These are all computer-based things that can simulate board games. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic for the week, which is a omnibus questionnaire we put up this on the guild we asked people to give us questions we also reached out to our friends in the industry to send us some questions and we're going to answer these questions okay well let's start off with i just very want very quickly want to address some games that people have been asking us for a very long time to talk about one of them is three kingdoms redux played it once a few years before we started the podcast thought it was pretty decent 
don't have much to say. People wanted to ask about splatter games that are not Food Chain Magnate. I'm a big fan of Antiquity. We've talked about that on the podcast. I'm okay on Indonesia and Great Zimbabwe because they are fundamentally, in a lot of ways, pick-up and deliver games more so than the other splatter games, and I'm not so big on them, but I do appreciate them. So I think they're pretty good. Then there's Roads and Boats, which is most emphatically not a game for Mark. It's pure logistics, and I'm not really a big fan of first you get the wood over here, and then you get the plank, process them into planks, then you take the plank over here and you put a little rod and then you build this building and now you can process this other thing and now you, uh, I just just that too sounds much. painful it's I mean look it's the best at what it does if you want pure logistics roads and boats is for you but it ain't for me then people have been hassling us about 18xx for a very long time I last played an 18xx game over 10 years ago my memory fades I keep meaning to play 1846 which I never have I don't have a whole lot to say about 18xx games as a result just yeah. calm down yeah, I, I unfortunately have a stigma against it, and I've never played them, so I shouldn't. But when I, I see people with nail clippers cutting corners off of their chits, and they have tweezers, that's not and, XX games. and they're moving stuff around. That's and, not, and I, I just you can't I'm even very get prejudices scared. right. And then finally, a number of people <laughs> wanted us to talk about Android Netrunner, which I played once a few years ago before the podcast started, and I played it once when it was actually in print in the first version in Netrunner. And I mean, basically, Walker and I talked about this. We don't really want to play deck construction games anymore, really. Like, just we're not, that that's not what we're into at this particular juncture. Give us a universe of 50,000 cards and say cobble together a deck, and that's not what I'm down for. Give me a universe of 50,000 units and say craft an army, that I'm down for, because then all my resources are available right at the start, and I get to use a bunch of different tools. But I, the, the whole logic of, well, this card would be really good, but only if I draw this other card first, and then in conjunction with the other thing, and maybe it's part of my hand throughput, whatever... Uh, I'm not really... The, the most I'm willing to do for that is a game like Warhammer Underworlds. That's as much deck construction as I'm inclined to do. And the other thing that I had against Netrunner is that it's fundamentally a game about action efficiency, and it made me feel like I was playing a weird kind of action efficiency Euro where the inputs were a random card draw, and I wasn't down with that. I recognize it's genius. I recognize that it is a fabulous game. And if I were into constructed games, I'd probably play Netrunner all damn day long, just not where we are right now. Yeah, true, 100%. If this came out like the same time Magic did or in that in that heyday when there's all about collectible card games, then I'm sure I'd be all about... Well, it, it, it did, and then it died. It, true, true enough. I meant in the in this new, where massively, where it came out supported, how's that? Sure. Would be all about it, but just, it's the time it takes, and you know, when, when other people put more time into it, and make this in a finely tuned deck, and you play against it, and it's like, okay, now I have to make a deck in order just to beat that particular type of deck, and then it's back and forth, and just not my thing anymore. Yep. So this is a question from Dan Thoreau of Space Biff. Dan, Dan Thoreau is one of my favorite writers and uh, board game reviewers. He has a two-part question. The first is, he says, you've mentioned in the past that you feel board games are important. Could you speak to the ways you find them important? Walker. Well, I think in this day and age, they, they're trying to get people away from their screens. And I think it's a good way to have like a family interaction where you're in cooperative games where you're teaming up as a family against a certain objective. And it brings people together in, in ways that, you know, society is always trying to, you know, put us in our own little slots. These things are, you know, bring us together, you know, under a common thing. And I think it's a, it's a healthy distraction. Unlike some of these other things that are unhealthy, I think board games are a very healthy distraction comparatively. I think they're important just because they're cultural artifacts. And I think that they need to be treated as 
products of culture in the same way that movies, books, music almost always have, and the way video games now are finally being taken seriously, I think that board games should be taken seriously as those kinds of cultural artifacts and dealt with the same degree of respect, rigor, and context. And so the second part of his question is, as people who spend a lot of time talking about board games, what do you see as the ideal role of a reviewer or critic in light of that, that being the recognition that board games are important? And I mean, for me, the answer is very, very simple. Just treating them as culturally significant in the same way that you treat all these other works. Don't, if the theme is problematic, if the theme is difficult, if you have concerns about the way it represents women or minorities, if you have concerns about the way it's situated in the genre, if you have concerns about the way that it rehashes mechanisms in an unexciting way, you don't just get to treat treat it in isolation uh, from both the rest of the genres and uh, the, the rest of the cultural context. And so that, I think, is the, the role of a critic to put those things in those kinds of contexts as much as possible. What I have this for this here is that we want some people to break out and give board games a try. And sometimes it's like a, it's a, you have a one chance to, to show these people how great this hobby is. And, it's, and you really want them to have a great experience. And hopefully they didn't pick the wrong game. And, you know, you want to be there to make sure, you know, they, you know what type of things they're interested in, therefore pick the right game for them to play. So we next question, Charlie Thiel of Player Elimination and Dignident Podcast asks, do you think a diminished pursuit and interest of critical apparatus from board game media has harmed the industry? Clearly not, because there's tremendous money to be made from derivative, uninspired, unengaging designs. Because if you look at the explosion of interest in the board game community for the past few years, and I think that it's it's definitely sustainable, you've got lots and lots of people turning out basically paid advertisement from the from the quote-unquote media analysis angle, although analysis is too generous a word, and you have endless dross flooding the market, but nonetheless proving to be profitable. Now, if this proves to be an unsustainable bubble that leads to a, co- a collapse and a cratering where even interesting games aren't able to find funding, then I think it's harmful, but I don't see any necessary reason why that needs to happen. So I think this is just one of those cases of, very much like movies, you're going to have an endless parade of derivative, unengaging nonsense, and it might drown out the market demand, or at least the market access for some more interesting stuff, but it's still there. You can still find those independent movies, or even the mainstream movies that are still really interesting. Like, Knives Out still made a crap load of money. Not the most interesting thing in the world, but still a solid, quality, well-made film. And just in the same way that for every every endless Stonemeyer easily accessible $500 intro game with beautiful components, you're still going to find the very, very interesting niche quality offerings on Kickstarter or even in other forms of publishing. I keep saying over and over, Devious Weasel is still making games. It is hard to be too down on the industry when Devious Weasel is still making games. It's true. I guess if you look at it plainly as, as an industry, then yes, I guess it doesn't, it has not hurt it. I just have it, what I have here is just, I just wish there was a thicker line between review and previews. Sure. You know, the fact that, you know, this is a reviewer, this is a hype machine, you know, take it into context. Agreed. Then our friends from Board Game Barrage, friends of the show, Kellen from Board Game Barrage asks, as as you have become professional game reviewers, professionals in brackets, I, I feel like he's insulting us here. I feel like he's negging our status. Do you feel like you are less of a collector of board games than before? Do you still crave the shiny bits, the complete Kickstarters, and need everything to be sleeved and orderly on the shelf? Well, first of all, I've never felt that anything needed to be sleeved, ever. And I don't know that it's really curbed my impulses as a collector, because 
when I get the game that's really good, I do want to go get everything. For example, we we acquired Hellboy the board game to review, and then I really liked it, and then I managed to uptrade to the complete Kickstarter version with all the bling inside, because, again, if you see all these games and you start churning through them on a quasi-professional basis, you want to latch on to the ones that you appreciate all the more. I did the same thing with Cerebri the Inside World. I've done the same thing for a number of things. So I don't know if my collector's impulses have been blunted too much. I just read the question again quickly. It doesn't say because of reviewers has it changed. It just says as you've become. So I, I had put... Oh, so I, now now you're the Kellen Whisperer. No, no, I... No, no, I'm not changing what you said. I, sure, I, I, just read, I read my answer and said, oh, maybe I misunderstood it because, you know, I said I just recently sold 200 games. But really, that wasn't because of being a reviewer. But then, I, like I said, I read the question. It doesn't really say. Anyway, this being said, my gaming collection is fractionally what it used to be. And even even the ones that I'm buying now, I'm not getting, you know, the shiny play mat or the deluxe components or... Or stuff like that. I mean, I've seen you unbox two playmats over the course of the Look, <laughs> mister. These are for games that I know I'll enjoy. Like sure. Lords of Hellas. Sure. You sure. were so kindly to get me my wonderful copy of Lords of Hellas and it needed a playmat. And the playmat that I got for the Game of Thrones, you have to have that game mat. Otherwise, the board is just silly. Yeah, clearly your collective impulses have been blunted considerably. Moving on. Mark Posada from Board Game Barrage asks, do you play games knowing that you're going to review them differently than you would play other games? No. Mine is also no. No, I always play, I play, I play all my games with an open mind until they inevitably disappoint me. Well, <laughs> I try. See, the thing is, sometimes people in the middle of a game, especially if I, uh, uh, whether I'm, I know I'm going to be reviewing or not, because we talk about nearly everything we play on the podcast. There are exceptions. But I know that I'm going to be called to account and present some sort of opinion on things. But I don't do that while I'm playing it. I do that after I'm playing it. Oh, you and I, I think, pointedly wait to the very yes. end. We, we sort don't... of glance across the table. Sometimes, <laughs> but then we try to bury it. Yeah. We try to make sure that we have at least a little bit of time to think about it after the fact so we can form opinions. And then we might bounce some ideas off each other to how to articulate them best. But we're not the kind of people who start reviewing a game two parts into the first turn. Some of our friends do that, actually. You know, Huey, Dewey, or Louie might start being like, and this is why this game is structurally unsound. And we're like, just just let the game speak for itself. Let's finish the first playing and see what we can do. It. And I think we've always really had that perspective even before we started doing the podcast. Agreed. Frank asks, are there any games you flat out refuse to play for one reason or another? So, I mean, trivially, the answer is yes, because games that we've played and we hated, we're never going to play again. So there's endless, like anything that I've rated a five or lower on BoardGameGeek, and probably sixes and sevens, you have a bit of a high ask. But I think what he's getting at is games that you haven't played yet. Are there any games that you would flatly refuse to play? Walker? Mine is just no. It's just only time is the issue. If I have time to play anything, I will play it, and I'll try anything once. I tried to think of a game whose theme or presentation was so... uh, so Egregious? Obviously egregiously, but... Honestly, I play Eklund games, and they're all about objectivism, which is a contemptible, bankrupt philosophy, so I guess the answer is no. Here's a question for you, Mark. Mr. Booze asks, is the new Successors Edition a good game for people who are curious about war games? I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that it is a really, really, really good game. Just give us us a quick, what is Successors? Successors is a four-player 
war... See, the problem is calling it a war game is a bit tricky. It is a four-player conflict game about the wars of the Diadochi and the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. It is one of my favorite games of all time. I have a couple of caveats, though, in terms of recommending it to somebody who wants to get into war games. Number one... I haven't played the 4th edition, and I don't know what they've changed. I do not trust Phalanx very much, and they might have messed with things in an unfortunate way, either in terms of components or rule set or both. Number two, it is not even remotely a consim. It doesn't model historical events. It models kind of sort of the antebellum historical events in that there are all these guys who started fighting against each other, but the historical coalitions and the historical battles that emerge from a game of successors are as divorced from reality as you could get. And so a lot of people in the wargaming community don't consider it a war game at all. I'm not quite as picky about that when it comes to historical representation, partially, I think, because I'm not really well-versed on the details of the the Wars of the Diadoke, but I can just tell you, if you're looking for a good multiplayer conflict game, Successors is amazing. If you can track down a copy of the third edition, go wild. If you want to wait for the fourth, it's probably going to be as good, but I haven't seen the new edition. I, I, I don't know. It's a little bit thorny in terms of rules exception, uh, exceptions, but not nearly as chromy or as difficult to internalize as a lot of other war games. Fabulous game. I want to go back to Frank's question, because as you were talking, it made me think of something. The, okay. one, the one when you flat out refused to play. Remember there was that, the what is it called, line in the desert? A distant plane? I think it is the distant plane, where they actually had photos of of the soldiers on the cards, and it was like a conflict that was still going on. The soldiers had not returned, and and a, the friend of mine had brought this up, and I'm, I'm looking at these cards of soldiers that, you know, actually existed. Like, I know soldiers in World War II exist and all that, but in Axe and Allies and these other games, they don't have stock photos of these soldiers in combat, you know, on the cards. And I felt very uncomfortable playing the game. But they've given their permission. Surely they have the right to give their permission for likeness. Oh, they do, 100%. I have no problem, you know, with that. It's just the fact that the conflict was still going on. So this is a question of personal comfort for yes. you. Oh, for okay. sure. 100%. Oh, no, there's right. no, I have no objection against the game in, in any case. In, Got it. In any way well, whatsoever. You, you should just... because it's a coin game and coin games are awful. Wow. PK asks, do you have any tips for game teaching? Well, we do, actually. We uh, we, 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 we immortalized them in uh, an episode of the podcast. Know the rules. Like, definitely, if anyone, th- if you're, like, if you're second-guessing yourself or having to look up the rules while you're teaching, people are going to wonder, you know, if you're actually teaching it properly. And another tip is I have is follow the flow of the game. Like, go through the turns in order, you know, as the game is played. You know, follow the the player aid. That way people get a, you know, feeling of how the game is played. And lastly, this goes for, you know, for being a teacher in general is, ha- is keep to a template. Like, you know, tell them you know, right from the beginning, the you know, they need to score what type of victory points they're scoring and then, you know, your your cadence, your your tempo, how are, how you teach the game. Just try to keep it the same every time. And it really helps you A teach games and, and people that are constantly playing games with you, they'll you'll get to know the cadence and they'll understand the game better. So we talked about this in episode 37. I tend to explain my rule, uh, my games always in the same way. Ble- brief explanation of the theme, if it's not immediately obvious. A very, very brief explanation about how you win. And then I go through the turn structure so that people always understand when they are doing the thing they need to be doing. And then I repeat at the end how scoring works. And that's that's sort of the, the broad template, and that's what I do every time. And then the follow-up question for that is, how do you learn new games, videos, solo multi-hand, with the group? Uh, and the answer for me is always solitarily reading the rulebook. Mine is I usually, if there is a uh, 
semi-short video, if they have like an hour and a half, you know, how to play video, then Ugh. no. If there's like a 20-minute video, I'll watch the video quickly first and then go to the to the rule book because – I don't know. I just, I, I need to know where something's leading to. It's like, you know, first you take this action, then you can take this action that will let you do. And I, I want to know what this, you know, in the end could lead to. And it drives me crazy. I'm like flipping through the rule book. Fine. Okay. Well, you know, what happens if this happens? Can you do this as well? And I hate having to look through the book, you know, to find those questions, like to get the whole sort of gist through the video and then read the rule book. Sebastian asks, what is your preferred player color to play with? If any yellow, Purple or black? He who shall not be named asks, what's one thing you would like to change about the board game industry or hobby? Mine is recycling, but more on that later. I'd say more critical analysis. Steve asks, you've just announced Swag is going into publishing. Which out-of-print Knizia game are you going to bring back from the grave? Beowulf the Legend, criminally underappreciated and out-of-print. I'm just turning my computer around so Mark can read what I have written. Beowulf the Legend. Beowulf the Legend. Fabulous game. For the exact same reason. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. Because Trevor. It's crazy only because I looked up Reiner Knizia's games and how many he has designed. It was a 64-page PDF document that you sent to me, yes. Yeah, this is no joke. 64 pages of games that Reiner Knizia has designed. Now, these are all, this includes all the different language editions, though. Every time it's republishing, but still, still yeah, yeah. Come on. Crazy. Go to his website. Maybe Mark will put the link down for me at the bottom of the podcast just to check this out. The um, sure uh, mass of games. On the topic of Reiner Knizia, allow me to just stress, I probably should have said this in the context of Mega Civilization because it was in the context of my birthday party. Dewey has won my birthday forever. Dewey found uh, a way to send off my copy of my prized game possession of the Pegasus printing of Tigers and Euphrates. He mailed it to Reiner Knizia, who signed it. And Reiner Knizia also signed a custom Reiner Knizia Games notebook in the front. And so now I have all this Reiner Knizia swag. It's amazing. I couldn't believe it. Reiner Knizia knows my name. He knows who I am. Anyway, Trevor asks, what are the best miniatures games, campaign skirmish or other, that are just books? And then uh, they proceed to list the three that are the best. Namely, Castlands, Rangers of Shadow Deep, and Zero Dark. Well, Zero Dark is a little soon to tell. Uh, my favorite that is not on that list is probably Song of Blades and Heroes. Tim asks, where's all the swag at? I'm craving a t-shirt. My answer is, me too. Adam asks, you both play traditional slash Euro board games and miniatures war games. It often feels like these are two very distinct caps of players with very little overlap between the two. Have you had success introducing more traditional board gamers into the miniature side of the hobby or vice versa? Mine would be just, yes, like my group was a miniature game group first and now we're a board game group. So I brought, you know, 15 people from playing miniatures into playing board games. I have had very little success getting board gamers to play miniatures games. I've had much more success getting mini minis gamers to play board games. We didn't do too bad, right? We, you know, uh, sub Huey and sub Dewey, we got into uh, some underworlds and some gaslands and stuff like that. But yes, I, it is. It's definitely, it's such a different, you know, going from paying, you know, 15 to a hundred dollars for a single game to <laughs> paying literally almost a thousand dollars in time to paint into a miniatures yes. game. It is a big difference. Absolutely. Where are we? Michael asks, what is your most controversial gaming opinion that we don't know about? Yes. You know, all my controversial opinions. Like <laughs> I don't, I don't hold them back. Optimus prime asks, 
Have you played any of the new Carl Chuddick games, GNC or Flood, uh, Blood of the Northmen, and what do you think? Walker, I don't think you have. I have not played any of them. I played a GNC, a GNC, I've only played a couple times, and it is very weird. Carl Chuddick games, you really have to get play a, a, a few more than a couple times to really get a sense of things. A GNC showed promise. I'm interested in trying it, especially as it gets closer to publication. So, Moo asks, Mark... Who did you main in the various Street Fighter incarnations? Noting your keepaway playstyle mentioned in an earlier episode. In Nerd! Or- Street Fighter 2 Sagat, Street Fighter Alpha Sagat, Street Fighter 3 Alex, Street Fighter 4 Sagat, Street Fighter 5 Sagat. And I'm going to do the next one too. Andy asks, best design for Vertec in fighter mode, YF-19 or YF-21? I'm going to well, try see, very carefully. Okay. The YF-19, Mark, just so you know, the code name is Alpha-1 NERD! Okay, first of all, they're not Veritex, they're Valkyries. Veritex is from Robotech, which is the bastardization of Macross. And let me tell you, Macross Plus is completely incompatible with the Robotech timeline anyway. You can tell this because the SDF-1 is still largely intact. As far as the fighter mode specifically, uh, the YF-19 hands down. The variable geometry reverse-swept wings are just fabulous. Now, once you get to the VF-22 Sturmvogel, first introduced in Macross 7, things get a little bit more complicated because I have a soft spot for that, largely due to my enthusiasm with the character of Gamlin Kazaki. But since you limited it to fighter mode, YF-19... Am I supposed to stop you? Like, are we going to go over... I'm done. That was the quick version. That was the quick version. All right. (laughs) Kyle asks, what are great intro games to wargaming? Would games like Commands and Colors or... Combat Commander be good places to start. I'd say yes. I'd say yes. Battle Lords, Commands and Colors game, and it's a great introduction to fantasy wargaming. If you want to get into wargaming, especially in the terms of historical sense, pick your preferred time period for the Commands and Colors series. It's probably represented there, and start there. If you're if you're uh, really keen on World War II and you want something a little crunchier, because because Memoir Forty Four is definitely the simplest. Well, the the American Civil War game Battle Cry is simpler, but it is among the simplest of the Commands and Colors games. And Combat Commander is pretty accessible and definitely has endless variety. Kevin asks, who wins more often, Mark or Walker? I'd say it's about even. I'd say after you're done bullying the table against me, it's usually you. But anyway, on to Andrew asks, what are your favorite video games? Star Control 2 is the best game ever made. I'm also a huge fan of Vagrant Story, Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup, Risk of Rain, and the King of Fighters series. I'm just simply LOL for days. I play LOL all the time, at least three games a day. When I'm not playing LOL, I am playing board game imports like Underworld, Scythe, or Terraforming Mars. Obviously not the second shooter on the grassy knoll asks, are there any video games you'd love to see as board games, tabletop miniatures games, or vice versa? Space Alert. Can you imagine Space Alert as a video game? It would be amazing fun. No, actually. I There are a couple of systems that I sometimes see in video games. I think, oh, that would make a, a pretty cool element in a board game or vice versa. But in terms of the, the, the core crossovers, like if you'd asked me a few years ago, uh, certainly before the release of Battlecon, but that's going back a ways, I would have said, yeah, we still need a very, very good fighting game representation. If you'd asked me before the release of Rum and Bones, I said, yeah, we should try some MOBA games. But they've done a pretty good job of that. Some guy asks, when were you the most wrong about a board game? First few times I played PAX Renaissance, I thought there wasn't enough there. It's when we played Skull for the first time. It was just like, this is just dumb. Mm, sure. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your buddy from Canada asks, Mark, if you're trapped on a desert island, would you rather have food, water, and shelter, or Tigers and Euphrates with the second player of your choice? Now, here's the thing. This is a bit of a trick question. Number one, 
I'd rather have the food, water, and shelter because Tiger's Infinity is not particularly good with two players. But if you're allowed, if you allow me to stipulate who the second player is, and I could stipulate somebody who could get me off the desert island, first we could play the game and then we could leave. Yeah, wait, yeah, like pick uh, some sort of survivalist, right? Sure. Jacob asks, what is the worst game you ever had a great time playing? Starship Samurai. Starship Samurai. That, we also, had a- that also answers another question that someone asked. Mine, I, actually, that's a great one. But uh, level seven invasion I have here. Overall, it is not a great game, but I have so much fun playing it. Love level seven invasion. Jacob also asks, what is the most offensive, racist, insensitive game that is well regarded in the hobby? Mine is Spirit Island. It offends me on every turn of the page it takes. Um, Pretty much anything by Phil or Matt Eklund. (laughs) Jacob asks, because he can... When will we get another, as if on cue, when will we get another (laughs) philosophical rant rant, like the Eklund rant? Yeah, I wonder why Jacob was thinking about Eklund when he asks me what the most offensive game that is well regarded in the industry. Look, I recorded a 20-minute analysis. Analysis is too strong. It was a rant. Fair enough. A 20-minute rant about Phil Eklund's views, specifically as indicated in Pax Renaissance and Pax Emancipation, with a couple of references to some of his earlier designs. It was one of the first Patreon episodes we released. Honestly, one of the problems is that... I, I just don't want to deal with Eklund's toxicity, quite frankly. I'm not, I have, I, people have been asking for a while for us to review more Eklund games. And quite frankly, I'm not interested for number one. I already have Pax Renaissance. I already know how to play Pax Renaissance. So I'm able to play that. And the more I play it, I get to forget how toxic it actually is in the background. And I just don't want to deal with more objectivist nonsense. I'm still healing. Now, <laughs> in the near future, maybe I might try something like, like Bios Origin Second or Pax Transhumanity or something. But just let me just let me be free of of of, of Eklund stuff. Mr. Megalord asks, what was the sorest painful defeat you ever tasted in board gaming that you still shudder and feel like the bile in the back of your mouth whenever you remember the incident? Oh, the only thing I've written here is probably some sort of hidden traitor game. I don't, and I'm I'm saying this not to 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 front or anything. I don't rem, I don't nurse failures like that. I don't really remember. Yeah, I, mine wasn't just so much as a failure. It was just like, oh, here we go again. You know, hidden traitor. Oh yeah, do do do. <laughs> Cloudy Crystal Ball asks, how do you think future generations of board gamers will remember the current period of board game design? That's an excellent question. I really don't know. Mine is, why are there so many zombie games and Viking games, but no zombie Viking games? <laughs> and then the other one is, Jesus, they really published everything back then, didn't they? <laughs> Sam asks, can we have a swag con once the COVID thing gets under control? I, mine is, I just have, I think there's enough events already. I don't, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. I, I already did, you know, looked into doing conventions a long, long time ago, and I did a few. Like, right, we have a Redcon here in Kingston. I organized one of those and other small things. It's just a lot of work on top of... It is. I sincerely don't think there's enough demand. Some kind of... Even even at the level of some kind of more casual get-together, I, I if if the demand became clear, we could try to think of the, the, the lowest impact way to do it, but quite frankly, I don't think it's there. 
A mathematical Platonist asks, and you have my sympathies, it sounds like a terrible way to live, do you ever have problems with less intelligent players wanting to join games that are rather too much for them to handle? Now, first of all, I just take issue with the premise. I was going to say, that, that's what I have right here. I said, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I, I reject the premise of the question that there's any correlation at all between intelligence and ability to grok game. I know lots of idiots who are very good with game systems. I know lots of very, very smart people who are bad with game systems. Now, rephrased as, do you ever have a problem with people trying to play a game that, for whatever reason, they're not able to grok? Or it's out of their wheelhouse. Or it's they, out of their wheelhouse, they exactly. They know that it's out of their... I, that's what I have. I said, just people's brains work differently. Being yep. able to find yep. a... That's a problem with the people that are bringing the games. Like, if you know the group that you're with and you bring games that you know that, that people don't do well with, then that, that's your problem, right? Finding a game that suits all people. And if you ever feel more intelligent than the people that you play with and think that your gaming crowd is on the low end of the IQ chart, then you need to stop playing solo games. <laughs> I have had the experience of people in open gaming nights and there's there's a game that's already set up and it's going to happen and there's room and somebody joins and it becomes relatively clear at the through the rules explanation or in turn one or whatever that they're just not going to be able to grasp it for whatever reason. And there I don't think it's anyone's fault, but I think it's one of those things where you're just trapped for the ride. Just it, it's going to have to happen because we we have very strong and I think for good reasons and bad we have very strong disincentives to people calling a game in the middle, especially when it's going to be someone's fault. It's like yeah, we're not going to be able let, let's just call the game and, and start something else because Jerry can't handle it. Like no, that's just not doable. So I think you just have to suck it up and play a bad game, a, b- a bad session of a game. Alex asks based on your playing for second and competitive episodes do you prefer winning or losing a really close game one point or a tiebreaker or a blowout either thrashing your opponent or being destroyed yourself i hate blowouts i do i love like i said i always love being like when the end score is everyone grouped really close together that means i think the game is well balanced and 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 that's where I have most fun. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I think sometimes it's actually a, it can be a sign of bad game design if everyone ends up really clustered. That that can be an instance, uh, an indication that there's not enough player agency involved. But that having been said, it's not always blowouts. Don't necessarily indicate good game design. But I just I just don't like it. It just leaves me people. So there was the question: what what defeat leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth? Victories actually more often leave me with a bad taste in my mouth when. The other player can look down at the track and see that they've been lapped or completely thrashed and there's sore feelings or whatever. I, especially since I'm most often the game explainer or the, the game bringer, I want everyone to have a good time. I want everyone to feel like they, they, they had a good experience. And if I'm like, hey, let's play this game so I can destroy you, that's not a good vibe. It's not a good scene. I don't like it. I hate I hate blowouts. I, I hate being the one winning in a blowout far more than I do losing in a blowout. But all things being equal, I would much rather either win or lose at a small margin. Zerth asks... Are there any high-ranking games, let's say in the BGG Top 200, which you don't even understand the enthusiasm for, i.e. that you disagree, but simply cannot even imagine the reason why so many people appreciate them? Not really. I think a lot of people just stand behind a designer or a publisher. I just have two examples here. We have Wingspan coming in at number 22. I understand why people like Wingspan. And we have Puerto Rico and Feast for Odin behind it. (laughs) Sure. I mean, it's... If you want me to compare two sets of rankings and justify them, that I can't do. But if the question is, can you, you know, if there's any game where you can't even begin to understand the popularity, I, I can understand why people like Wingspan. Yeah, no, I'm I'm mostly just concentrating on the actual BGG top 200 thing. You know, like how sure. how does it work, and you know how you know how does it sort of like 
we've both tried. You have you finished your Pandemic Two game? No. So we both tried to play Pandemic Two. Pandemic Legacy Season Pandem- Two. Sorry, Pandemic Legacy Season Two. Uh, I'm going to say quickly about number one. It is one of the greatest gaming experiences I've ever had. If anyone has ever played Pandemic, I would say definitely, you know, give Legacy a try. It is like one of the greatest experiences you'll ever have. That, on the other hand, Pandemic 2, I thought was was a far worse game and didn't even come close didn't even come close to measuring up to the first one. It comes in at 33. Now Root is behind it now, and so is Marco Polo behind Pandemic Legacy Season 2. These are things I just thought was odd in the BGG ranking system. Reasonable. Leobardo asks, do you have any thoughts on the environmental impact of board gaming as a hobby? I don't because I don't know anything about the topic. He says in context of the hotness. I think he's thinking, you know, we're all buying these new games and, you know, they're being cycled too quickly. Yeah. I I, I think there's a good secondary market for some games. I think they're getting traded around. I want to just concentrate more on on the expansions that come out and these Kickstarters, you know, that come out with 500 boxes and, you know, they're all, you know, full boxes and the size, sometimes the, the board games come out and the boxes are way too big. I just, I just think we really should step up and start asking the publishers to come up with alternative solutions to this kind of things. Like, like a certain percentage of expansions be bagged up, you know, in like a tin bag or, you know, a sealed bag, you know, so the, the, the stores can still put boxes on the shelf and then the consumer has a has an option to come and say, this is what I want. Do you have the bagged version? And then you can just open up and throw it into your game. I really think we should start requesting these things. You know, we have to step up and start asking for less garbage in, in these games. Like, like we as reviewers, I'm opening up several games a week and the amount of recycling garbage that I have to throw out on the road is incredibly excessive i don't think you're supposed to throw it on the road i think you're supposed to put it in some kind of bin lies well those are all the questions that we received thank you very very much for joining us for so very wrong about games if you'd like to get in touch with us you can reach walker via his email just roll the dice at gmail.com you can reach me mark bigney on twitter at the games you like for more public discussion you can find the so very wrong about games facebook page or you can check out our, our board game geek guild which is guild number three two three six and you can find us on patreon We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you very much for your questions. This was fun. I think we should do this again sometime. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 